Hola, soy Erika de la Vega y hago un podcast llamado En Defensa Propia, donde converso con mujeres sobre sus procesos de reinvención y transformación y sobre las herramientas que necesitamos para lograrlo. A través de las historias que escucharás en En Defensa Propia, conseguirás la inspiración y la motivación para reconectar con tu poder interior, cambiar tu actitud hacia los cambios y así poder diseñar la vida que quieres vivir. En Defensa Propia. Puedes escuchar En Defensa Propia en todas las plataformas de audio. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast has mature content and language that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode two. Do you see me? What are life's most celebratory moments? Maybe things like graduations or new jobs. They're a little different for me. I know that the things I celebrate really do make me happy. But I wonder if they'd mean the same thing if they happened to other people. I wonder if there's another life where I could ask for more. For more to celebrate. Or just for more. The words that Jason told me after we broke up You're just a fat just tranny, a fat tranny were just tranny, echoing tranny. in my head for weeks. Who's never gonna Who's find never anyone gonna to find love, her. love her. I felt so low. I was grieving a relationship that was a big part of my life. It was my first relationship as a woman. And I felt I didn't want him back. That was clear. I didn't want to be in the relationship with Jason, but I felt lonely. And so what happened next felt like something major to celebrate. But was it? I'm Emmy, and this is Crumbs, my love story. It's a show about the things we settle for and the bits of ourselves that make us who we are. Emmy, 26. Mm. 25. Fun, caring Latina seeks a healthy relationship with a nice guy. It had only been a few weeks since I broke up with Jason. 
But even though I was carrying this hurt, I was also carrying something that was new to me, even though I didn't realize I was doing it. I was carrying the confidence that I didn't have at the beginning of my transition. Actually, I feel like I need to tell you about this because it was a major milestone in my life. At the time, I was working for AT&T, major phone company. I was a customer service representative for the Hispanic Center, and I sat, talked, and typed all day, taking incoming calls. All of the calls were in Spanish. It was people who would come from all over Hispanic countries, people from Mexico, people from Honduras, from Guatemala, from Cuba, everywhere. Other people had questions about their phone bill or wanted to establish new service or wanted to forward their service to a different location. I'm the person you would get. And I would say, Gracias por llamar al Centro Hispano de AT&T. Mi nombre es Emil. ¿Cómo le puedo ayudar? Why is my bill so high? Can you explain the taxes and surcharges? So I actually worked for the phone company for nine years. That was my first job that I had right after high school. This company saw me at my worst, right? When I was drinking, when I was using drugs. After I got sober, I started going to school, taking one class here, three units here, six units there, night classes, weekend classes. And then I started my transition. So I went through my entire transition working at AT&T. We had a huge building, probably about over 200 people in our department. Working in the Hispanic market, there's this machismo, there's this stigma, there's this homophobia, transphobia, and it was very scary. I started by talking to a few of my friends, and then I slowly, gradually started wearing women's jeans, and then wearing booties with, the, with a little bit of a heel and then started wearing eyeliner, and my hair started growing. And then I talked to HR, and I said, hey, I'm going through this transition. Here's my legal name change. I had to get a new badge for my picture. And that was, you know, I was so excited about that because they were going to take my picture with me presenting as a woman, and my name was going to be different on the badge. I changed all of my systems were changed to my new name. We have a pre-recorded greeting. So I had to make sure that I had to record my greeting all over again. Gracias por llamar al Centro Hispano de AT&T. Mi nombre es Emi. ¿Cómo le puedo ayudar? Instead of like what it was before. And I remember thinking, my voice, are they going to call me, hola señor, or are they going to call me, hola señorita? And so I remember freaking out about that and being so paranoid and self-conscious about it. I started practicing like what my voice was going to sound like. Gracias por llamar a AT&T. Mi nombre es Emi. ¿Cómo le puedo ayudar? Am I going to sound more high-pitched? Am I going to be more quiet? Am I going to be louder? Mi nombre es Emi. In the end, I was very surprised that the women who would call or the men who would call, they'd be, Hola, señorita. The re-recording just worked.
I think it's a huge milestone when people start identifying you as what you really are. Women or men were speaking to me as senorita. It just made me happier in my workplace. I was in that awkward phase where, you know, I had just started hormones. I, my skin was different. The shape of my body was different. This was before I even got electrolysis to have my facial hair removed. And so, yes, I was shaving on a daily basis, but it wasn't the same as having smooth skin as I have now. So it was an advantage to only speak to these people through the phone versus seeing them in person. So this thing that I celebrated, this huge milestone, was people calling me senorita. It was like acknowledging my existence. It was validation and I needed it from them, from these strangers. They have no idea. They probably didn't give a shit, but it's what I wanted for so long. When I started hormones, my body lit up like a Christmas tree. I started getting a curvier waist. My fat was distributing to different areas of my body. And it just made my skin softer, a lot softer. I felt more comfortable in my own skin. And the feeling I got when people called me senorita on the phone, it started happening when I would meet people in person. It's called passing. At the time, it felt like the only way to be trans was to pass as a cis woman. And so when I did, it felt really good. But now, it's different. There's a whole spectrum. And it's individual to everyone. Some people might not want to pass. And that's totally fine. But if you want to get on hormones or get electrolysis or see an endocrinologist, it's not always easy for everyone. So I felt really lucky that I could do those things. Not everybody wants to pass, but I really did. It's a little weird for me to look back and see how important that was to me. But it was. And so, if it was that important for me to get validation from strangers, you can imagine how much it meant to me when someone flirted with me. A few years after my transition, after I broke up with Jason, that happened when I least expected it. I was at a recovery conference running the registration table. I was in this big crowded hotel lobby, sitting on a plastic chair, fucking around on my phone. I see this guy walk by, and he was about my height, squinty eyes, very good looking. He had a goatee going on, wife beater, basketball shorts. And he turned around, he looked at me, and he just gave me that look. Like he was checking me out. A few minutes later, he came by the registration desk, and he asked, is this where you register? You know, there was a big sign with big letters that said registration. So that was a reach. He told me his name was Ryan, and then he asked me a bunch of stuff about the conference. He asked, like, what time is the main meeting? Where can you get food here? Where is this panel being held? 
He clearly just wanted to talk to me because all that information was in the pamphlet I had just handed to him. And I was kind of flattered by that. I could feel that he was attracted to me. I was attracted to him. So I felt this spark between us. And when he turned around, I noticed he had hickeys on his neck. And I'm like, what the fuck? I wasn't particularly drawn to the hickeys. It was kind of a turnoff. Like, this guy's just a fuck boy. Later on that afternoon, he came up to me and he just started small conversations, small talk, asking me where I was from and how long I'd been sober and how long I'd be on this planning committee. So I talked to him. I told him that I was in school, that I would come down on weekends and be active in my recovery down here. And he seemed very interested. I was intrigued by his charm, his good looks, and the fact that he was giving me attention at a point where I was in a dark place emotionally from, you know, recovering from this relationship with Jason. I have this void inside, right? That just feeds off of attention and validation. A lot of our dates consisted going to meetings together and going to have coffee, going to a taco shop and just sharing some food. He was different in the way that he was very thoughtful with little things. So every time I'd see him, he would have picked a fresh flower for me and put it behind my ear. Little things like that. It was affectionate. It was something that I wasn't used to. He called me a lot. He texted me a lot. He sent me a lot of pictures. So he was always thinking of me and always wanted to be around me. Ryan was very quiet as a person. And sometimes we just sit there and to him that meant everything. Like He just wanted to sit and have a conversation with me. I wanted to do other things. A road trip or just going out to the movies seemed like a big deal. But if he was so happy just being next to me, well, that was nice too, right? I mean, he wasn't exactly what I had been dreaming of in a partner. I wanted somebody who had a vision for themselves, who were going somewhere, who had plans, ambition. And he didn't have that. And I thought, well, maybe I can be a positive influence in his life, right? Maybe I can steer him in the right direction. Ryan had never been with a trans woman before. I was his first. And he didn't seem to care. He didn't carry any sort of prejudice or insecurity about it. He was open to it. And he was very proud to have me by his side and call me his girlfriend. It felt very good. Because I had a few trans friends who weren't getting that. I think in a way it had a lot to do with me, quote unquote, passing as female, right? Ryan really wanted to be my boyfriend. He wanted to be my life partner. He said, hey, you know, maybe when you graduate, we can get married. 
To hear that was just incredible. It was really flattering. This sweet guy wants to marry me. And of course I said yes. How many guys do you find that want to marry a trans woman? And it's like I saw this perfect ending of my love story that ended in marriage. But I basically said yes to a guy that I've only been dating for a few months. In reality, I wasn't voicing what I really wanted in a relationship. Here's Ryan giving me all this attention, showering me with loads of affection, right? PDA and cutting fresh flowers for me and calling me all the time, wanting to be involved in my life. But then I started feeling smothered. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have a memory of being a little kid, eight years old. I'm at my grandparents' house, my dad's parents, which is where I had been living. Because my other grandmother was in prison, they were the only ones providing stability in my life. They had a four-bedroom house. There was food on the table. I had my own bedroom. You know, there were things about it that weren't ideal. Things that weren't great for me. I'll get to those later. But overall, we had a good home. The TV was on loud, people were coming in and out. They were happy people, there was music playing always. We had to go home. They even enrolled me to school right across the street. Every Christmas Eve, we had this tradition on my dad's side of the family. We'd go to Tijuana, to my great-grandparents' house, where all of my grandmother's brothers and sisters came to spend Christmas Eve with their families. Huge family. Christmas Eve was always so much fun because we got to dress up, cross the border, walk into this house where everyone's happy. You walk in and you can smell the tamales cooking. All the kids would be outside playing with fireworks, lighting fireworks. One of my cousins had an organ and we'd gather around and sing along while she played. Right before midnight, we'd gather around the nativity set and they'd pass baby Jesus so that everybody can hold him and kiss him. And at midnight, we'd put him on the nativity set and then we'd be able to open up one present from Santa Claus. I loved those days. That year, when I was eight years old, the day before Christmas Eve, I was sitting at my grandparents' house getting excited to go to Tijuana. I look out the window and the strange car pulls up. And out of the car comes my mom. I'm so surprised to see her because I'm thinking she's supposed to be in jail, but here she is. She'd been arrested a few months earlier, one of many arrests that I could remember. Knowing she was in jail was like knowing it was going to rain for a very long time. It just seemed like a sad but normal part of life. So I got used to her being gone, but there she was, right outside. So I run up to her. She hugs me and I say, what are you doing here? And she said, well, I got out. I was supposed to go to a drug program, but we're going to do something else. 
my mom told me she was staying at a hotel. She tells me that she's going to come pick me up in a couple days. But I'm so happy to see her that I want to go with her. I'm like, mom, can I go with you? She said, no, just stay here with your grandparents. Let Christmas pass by and then we'll leave. But because my mom was free and out of jail, I didn't want to go to Tijuana that night. I wanted to go stay with my mom. And she pushed back. She said, are you sure you want to come with me? I don't have presents. We're not going to have a nice dinner. We're just going to be stuck in a hotel room. You're going to be so bored. I didn't care. I wanted to go. I just wanted to be with her more than anything. We made a quick stop at this little store. It was probably a 99 cent store. And she said, you can pick something. And I gravitated towards this little boom box. I figured we'd have music to play at night. So she bought me this boom box and off we go to the hotel. As soon as you open the door to the hotel room, you can smell the smoke of previous smokers who were staying there. The carpet's old, it looks nasty and stiff. Cigarette burns on the carpet. Old furniture, it feels like it's the 1970s because everything's brown and orange. It's right next to the highway, so it's very loud. The walls are really thin, you can hear noises from people next door to you. The TV's old with an antenna that barely works, you only get five channels. So I have this memory of that night. I'm sitting at the foot of the bed. My mom's on the bed, laying down. I'm looking for something to watch on TV. I'm looking for a Christmas movie so that we can get into the Christmas spirit. I'm playing with the boombox, trying to find Christmas music so that we can sing Christmas carols. And I remember thinking that my mom was a little spaced out. So in the time since, I've learned that she was also doing heroin that night. She would go into the bathroom and get loaded, shoot up. And I'm outside, just sitting on the bed, trying to find something to watch on TV. Any moment that I had with my mom just really felt like a gift to me. And then I think about it, and even though I was spending time with my mom, I wasn't really getting any attention from her. She wasn't even playing with me. She probably wasn't even talking to me. Most likely she was nodding off from being on heroin. It's not that my mom didn't love me as a kid. She did. She was just in her illness, in her disease. And I equated attention to love. And since I wasn't getting any attention, I didn't feel loved. And here's my theory. I think because I had very little attention as a child, I settled for these crumbs of attention from my mom or from anybody who would give them to me, even into my adult life. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I grow up, I'm dating Ryan, 
In the beginning of the relationship, all his calls and texts that would come just made me feel so validated, so wanted, right? Like somebody actually wanted to spend time with me. Was that enough? Did it add up to us loving each other? I'm sitting in my car with him next to me and he's making all these plans of how when I graduate college, he wants to do this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, this fucking sucks. So this guy wanted to marry me. And I felt like I was supposed to celebrate that. I was supposed to say yes. I was used to celebrating things that I didn't want to have to celebrate. Jason had told me that I couldn't find love. And here I was. I found someone who did love me. But it wasn't making me happy. I didn't want to celebrate this. And I was so torn. I was so worried that I wouldn't find this again. But I have to listen to myself. Not the fear. The love. About things that are actually important to me. I was stringing him along, pretending to be totally fulfilled by our relationship, but I wasn't. Sitting in the car, I had a wave of guilt and a big wave of fear. I looked at him and I said, Ryan, we need a break. I need to focus on school. I don't have it in me to continue this relationship. And he just silently cried on the passenger seat of my car. But he took it. He didn't put up a fight. And that's how I ended it. I know why I'm addicted to attention. Addicted to these little moments when someone texts me or flirts with me. It makes me feel important. And I was terrified to lose that. But maybe it's worth the risk. Can I have someone's attention in a real deep connection? Can I have something worth celebrating? Maybe next time when I meet Adam. Crumbs is a production of iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network and Sonoro in association with Trojan Horse. It's produced by Margaret Catcher and Carmen Graterol and edited by Jasmine Romero and Alex Fumero. Original music by Daniel Peterschmidt and engineering by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Executive produced by Giselle Vances and Connell Byrne for iHeart, Alex Fumero for Trojan Horse, Joshua Weinstein, Jasmine Romero, Camila Vitoriano, and Jerónimo Avila for Sonoro, and me, Emmy Olea. Special thanks to Monisa Henricks, Fernanda Estrada, and Sara Mota. Listen to Crumbs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.